And welcome back this morning, listeners, to Come and See Inspirations. My name is Shane Ambrose, and I'm delighted that you're joining myself, uh, myself and John here on our podcast production this morning. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to take a slight little journey through saints, and in particular, Irish saints, and in particular, saints that are in the process to becoming saints, if you know what I mean. So, John, you've asked me a couple of times about the whole process of saint making, and we, we talk about servants of God, venerables, blesseds, and then we get to actual saints. And what does it mean? So the process is, there's a formal process of investigation that the church goes through before it will make the decision whether or not to declare somebody a saint. And generally, most people know the bit about, well, to become a saint, you have to do a miracle. And yes, that's one, that's one thing. But, to become, but as you work up along, there's different degrees of investigations. And following the degrees of investigations, you kind of move along the process where they review your life, your writings. They gather testimony about, your, about the person and they investigate the person. Sometimes they may even exhume the remains just to inspect them. If you remember a couple of years ago when they were doing that for John Henry Newman, um, they exhumed, he was blessed with John Henry Newman, and they were exhuming his remains to gather relics. And when they exhumed his, when they dug up the grave, they found nothing. Everything had dissolved. Um, you know, so it's, it's, yeah, so that's in terms of that whole process. So, and, but it's only a process which has been centralized by the Holy See since about the 11th century. So what you find is many of the Irish saints on the calendars, they're what are called pre-congregations. They, they were there before the congregation for saints. Um, so, for example, our own St. Patrick, St. Bridget, St. Colum Kill, you know, the three biggies on the calendar. No pope ever stood up and declared them saint officially, like happens at the moment. But they are saints of the church because they have been acclaimed by the people, they've been accepted by the bishops, and so therefore they're on our, they're on our calendar and we can commemorate them and celebrate them and look to them as witnesses for the journey. Because ultimately, that's what saints are. They are people that are held up as role models for the Christian faithful to follow. And it's an interesting one. I didn't realize this actually until a couple of years ago, John. When the Pope makes the declaration that somebody is a saint... It's actually an exercise of papal infallibility. Mm. So it's an interesting one because uh, it poses a couple of questions. Uh, it was it poses a couple of questions to me because a lot of you talk to older people in particular, and um, they'll say to you, "Well, there was such and such a saint on the calendar, but the, it got rid of them in after the second time yeah, of the council." Yeah. Um, and yes, there was there was a reform of the calendar in at the council about 1969, and Pope Paul VI asked that the saints that were on it that we weren't 100% sure about should really be taken off. So there was a couple of there was a couple of big hitters that were caught with that. You had Saint Christopher, Saint Barbara, Saint Philomena. Um, a lot of those they were taken off because basically we couldn't stand over the historical accuracy that these people actually existed. Now, Philomena has crept back in. Okay. <laughs> um, I've, 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 I've seen her around a bit. Christopher, despite the proclamations of popes, poor St. Christopher is still hanging around and he's still <laughs> very popular with people. So he's, he's still there. So it's just, it's just an interesting one as well. People power. And he's, exactly. People power. Because that's one of the key things that mm. they will look for when they're talking about making somebody a saint. Yeah. Like we had, do you remember a couple of weeks ago, John, we had the guys on from the US about Father Emile Capon. Yes. Uh, the, the, the guy that died in the prisoner of war camp. So the whole thing about it is, um, you, when you're trying to get someone 
canonized, you have to prove that there is what's called a cultus. There's a devotion to a particular saint. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the religious congregations, um, they try to see how far they can get, say, for example, with their founders. And that's one of the problems or one of the challenges. So when I'm doing the saints every week, one of the challenges I come across when I'm trying to pick out saints is the fact that a lot of our saints are men and women who were religious. So it's only in the last century that we see more and more lay people being canonized. So it's it's a bit it's a particular it's a bit of a challenge. Um, but they're held up, you know, and obviously you can't hold up, you know, religious necessarily as role models for lay people or married couples or whatever. So that's thing that's something that particularly John Paul II tried to change. And at the time, John Paul II got an awful lot of criticisms about his saint making process because uh, he canonized so many saints. As it's happened, even though Francis has been in, in the office less than John Paul II, he's canonized more yes, saints. Yes, yes. Because one of the reasons is he did a bunches of martyrs, people that have been killed in different countries. I think it was Korea and maybe the Spanish Civil War, I think. I need to double check that. But anyway, coming back to what I wanted to talk about this morning, it is the Irish ones. So it's the Irish causes that are out there at the moment. Now, I started looking into this a couple of months ago and I was looking around to see, was there any place centrally where I could get the names of Irish causes? And there isn't because sometimes it's been looked after by a diocese. Sometimes it's been looked after by a religious congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just depends. So there's no central kind of place in Ireland. So there was one or two that I wanted to pick out. So the first three are to deal with the Legion of Mary. So the first one, of course, is Frank Duff. Frank is the founder of the Legion, and mm-hmm. Frank has the title Servant of God. So uh, that's the first step on the process, right? And he was declared a servant of God. Uh, I've lost it. One second. Mm-hmm. I've lost my space. Give it to me a second. So he said he's anyway, he's he's commemorated anyway on the 7th of November because that's when he died. So Frank, of course, is famous because he's the founder of the of the Legion of Mary. And did you know he attended the Second Vatican Council? No, I didn't know that now then. Frank, Frank Duff attended the Second Vatican Council and he was bringing and drawing attention to the role of the laity in the church. So he, uh, there's a decree on the apostles of the laity, which was issued by the Second Vatican Council, and Frank Duff had input into that. So Frank was born on the 7th of June, 1889. He was the eldest of seven children, and they, he was a dub, true and true. So they lived on St. Patrick's Road in Drumcondra, and Frank attended Blackrock College. So um, through his work with the St. Vincent de Paul, he was exposed to the poverty in Dublin. And that's why he started kind of getting involved uh, with soup kitchens and so on and so forth. And then um, they, were, they set up soup kitchens, what they called Catholic soup kitchens, because a lot of people were going to the Protestant soup kitchens. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit of, you know, ecumenical mm-hmm. rivalry mm-hmm. there at the time. And then he retired from the civil service in 1934, and he devoted all his time then to the Legion of Mary. So he set up the Legion to um, uh, to the Legion and spreading the Legion as a lay apostolate at the service of the Catholic Church. He's written quite an awful lot. There's quite a bit about writings that he's done. So that's that's Frank, and he died in what year did he die? In 19, 1980. Fair so, age. So. 
Yeah, so it's really recent. So Frank, and he's a, he's a servant of God. The other one, of course, is Adele Quinn. Now, we've had someone on about Adele before, the venerable, and she's a venerable, so she's a step ahead of Frank. Um, and she died in 1944. And Adele, of course, was from Castle Magner in County Cork. And she went off, she developed tuberculosis, I think she was in her mid-twenties, mid, mid, mid uh, no, at the age of 29, and dying of tuberculosis, she became the Legion of Mary envoy to West Africa and was a ex- very active missionary in East and Central Africa. And she settled in Nairobi and worked out there. She, she, she between Dar es Salaam and Mauritius. Now, I can tell you, as someone who has lived in African countries, the amount of ground that this woman covered is unbelievable. I believe so. Yeah. Uh, and rough conditions as well. And she, you know, even fighting her illness for seven and a half years, she established hundreds of legion branches and councils in what is today Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda, Malawi, and Mauritius. And even today, I know myself, there's a great devotion to her in the legions of Mary, particularly in uh, Uganda. So she died and she's buried in Nairobi. She died in 1944. She was only 36. And she's buried in the Missionary Cemetery in Nairobi in Kenya. So that's uh, one of our venerables. So her cause for beatification was introduced in 1956 and she was declared venerable by John Paul II in 1994. So the cause for her beatification continues. So beatification would be the next step in the process. Okay. So they're looking, for, they're looking for a miracle through Adele's intercession. The next one then is the servant of God, Alfie Lamb. So this is another legionnaire, legionary. Legionnaire, yep. He was from Tullamore and he was born in 1932, actually during the Eucharistic Congress. Um, a huge man for... He, he'd spent part of his youth in the Novitiate of the Christian Brothers, uh, but the health wasn't great with him either. So he found his vocation in the Legion of Mary, and he was appointed an envoy for the Legion in 1953. And he left for South and Central America. So for six years, he worked promoting the Legion in Colombia, Argentina, Ecuador, Uruguay, and Brazil. Uh, but he died in Buenos Aires after a, a short illness in 1959, and he is buried in the vaults of the Irish Christian Brothers in the Recolata Cemetery in Buenos Aires. And again, he had a huge devotion to Our Lady and um, in particular, the, the, the setting up. He, it, it's, it's, um, he had a great facility for learning languages, actually, Spanish and Portuguese, which is why he was able to do so much. So that's Alfie, that's Alfie Lamb. So that's our three legionaries, our legionaries of Mary. Um, then another one which people may not have heard about is Mother Kevin. Now, hmm. she is otherwise known as Teresa Kearney. Uh, again, there's a Ugandan connection. She was a missionary in Uganda and was the first superior general of the Franciscan Missionary Sisters for Africa. She was born in Arklow in County Wicklow in 1875. And that was three months after her dad was killed. And she was 10 years old when her mother died. And she was raised by her maternal grandmother, uh, who was known as Granny Grinnell. And um, she was a student in Arklo, didn't do so great there. Um, but she wanted to train as a teacher, but the finances weren't available. So she became what was called a junior assistant mistress. And there were the undervalued, untrained teachers who made up the bulk of the profession. She taught in, the U- in Dublin and England for a while. She looked after her aunt, and then after her aunt died, she taught about becoming a religious. So she applied for admission to the Franciscan Sisters in London, in Mill Hill, 
and she wanted to be posted among African-Americans, but she was called to serve in Africa. And her role in Africa then, at 1902, she, at the request of Bishop Hanlon of the Mill Hill Fathers, she went off to what was the Vicariate of Upper Nile, which in modern language is modern-day Uganda. And they ended up at Nasambia, which is in um, Kampala. Now, I've been there. So Nasambia Hill is known as Catholic Hill. So it was the center of the Mill Hills for their vicariate, which was the area of, of Africa that they had responsibility for as priests and for spreading the faith and all the rest of it. And to this day, Nisambia, it's where there's a lot of the, the Catholic secretariat. There's a huge Catholic hospital there, which was set up by Mother Kevin. And it's, you know, it's known as Catholic Hill. So she, she went to Africa. She worked for years there. It's a vast territory. Her name is Household Name. And she spent 52 years working in Africa, founding several missions, including the Congress. The, 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 the bears her name and um, one of her biggest things was about the concern for women and women's rights and she worked tirelessly particularly to educate um, Afri- Ugandan women in particular and she lived to see one of her pupils receive the first Bachelor of Science degrees in East Africa and another became the first woman doctor um so you know so that's so she founded the little sisters of saint francis in 1923 which is why she's known as mother kevin uh she set up she'll set up a leprosarium and she then she died in 1957 in new york or sorry in boston and she died quietly and alone uh because she was there fundraising and Cardinal Cushing of Boston was a friend of hers and he arranged for her her remains to be brought back to Ireland to be buried in um, Dundalk. Uh, but she was only there for one month because basically the people of Uganda asked for her body to be returned to the country that she loved. So her body was brought back to the community in, in, in Uganda. So that's Mother Kevin. So that's another cause that's pending at the moment. Um, I'm focusing on the women predominantly. I just want to highlight, do you remember Mary, uh, let me take, no, Mary, Catherine Macaulay. Yes. Now, pe- people will say, oh, is Catherine Macaulay's name familiar? She's a founder of... Macaulay used to be on no, no, no. Catherine Macaulay used to be on the old five pound note. She, yeah. if you remember, before the euro, the fiver, the fiver was a small brown note. Now, this is not the old old fiver. This was the one they they changed in the nineties, and it was Catherine Macaulay that was on it. And Catherine Macaulay, she was born in Dublin, seventeen seventy eight, and she's the founder of the Sisters of Mercy, That's and she right. founded them in Dublin in eighteen thirty one. Interesting woman. She was lucky to get an inheritance, which allowed her to set up the Centre of Mercy in Dublin, and eventually, then she had to found. Um, she had to found. She founded the the the, the, the Sisters of Mercy. Now, the sister, the House of Mercy, it's called. I beg you. Pardon. She founded in 1827. Now, Catherine McCauley is interesting because she, her congregation, the Mercy Sisters, when she set it up, they were unusual at the time because they weren't cloistered uh, and they were out serving the poor. Um, so, and the work that they have done, there was a lot of misunderstanding, criticisms her, and of course, we know that there's a lot of issues around some some of the history of the sisters. But it doesn't take care, it doesn't take away from some of the great work that they have done over the years. Um, and just and she was very much focused again on focusing on supporting women, particularly who were destitute and who were uneducated and had no other resources. So that's Catherine McCauley. Uh, I wanted to mention Mary Aikenhead as well. She was a Cork woman, and she's known as Mary Mother Mary Francis or Mary Aikenhead. She was born in 1787. 
and she is the founder of the Religious Sisters of Charity. Now, obviously, okay. they're in the news a bit at the mm-hmm. moment, so we won't go too much into that. Mm-hmm. But just she's another one whose cause is pending, and I thought it was an interesting one just to mention. She was given the title Servant of God in 1921, and she is Venerable Mary Aikenhead since 2015. So it's very recent. So 2015 would have been under Benedict. So Benedict was the one that declared her venerable. And so the religious, uh, the other thing is uh, she was um, the, the, sisters, the religious sisters of charity. They founded Our Lady's Hospice in Harold's Cross. And that's where Mary Aiken had spent the remainder of her life. And that's where she died. And so that's Mary Aikenhead. So that's another one. And then uh, two, maybe two, three more, John. Um, one interesting one I came across and to be honest, I hadn't didn't know a whole lot about this one. Little Nelly of Holy God. It seems ah, yeah. yes. yes. So she's very much associated, of course, with Cork. Mm-hmm. And there is a bit of a tatarara there at the moment, of course, because um let's go through the story. So little Nelly, she was um Basically, she's a saint, or she's a she's a little girl that lived in Cork. She died in 1904, and there's a huge local devotion to her among people in mm. Cork, and that she had a huge devotion to um, the Blessed Sacrament. And it is said that through her intervention is why Pope Pius IX reduced the age to receive Holy Communion to the age of seven, or the age of reason. Um, now, the problem is, little Nelly, um, they haven't officially opened her calls for canonization yet. So it was reviewed in, what year was it reviewed? It was reviewed in 2019. And at the time, Bishop John Buckley said he wasn't convinced that the evidence collated warranted sending it to Rome at the time so they're still they're still trying to they're still trying to get stories together gather people's testimony mm-hmm. and make sure that there is a devotion to little nelly the other difficulty of course at the moment is that um there's a, the question of where is little nelly's remains so little nelly was originally buried in um I can't remember where she was buried, but she was moved to the, to the graveyard of the Good Shepherd Sisters. But unfortunately, the Good Shepherd Sisters, they've closed their monastery or their convent in Cork, and it's been sold. So the whole place is currently boarded up. Yeah. And it's also caught up because it's also the Magdalene Laundry Cemetery as well. So there's that difficulty yeah. in trying to deal with mm. anything. But the Diocese of Cork was trying to remove Little Nelly, but it, it's run into difficulty. So that's Little Nelly of Holy God. So just an interesting one that people might be able to, to look into. And then finally, John, I'm just going to mention uh, by name. So there's Nano Nagel. So Nano uh, is the founder of the very much associated she's the founder of the presentation order yeah. again mm-hmm. as, again associated with cork very much associated with education so i just mm-hmm. wanted to mention her name mm-hmm. and nano is do, 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 the presentation sisters are still there um and they've opened a sister as, as um what you call it a a center about Nano in, in Cork as well to tell her story. Believe, but yeah. the last one, one, the last the last story I want to tell today is the story of Matt, Matt Talbot. And Matt is is he's a venerable and he's a he's a he's a cause which is often overlooked. And he's very much of course he's a Dublin story. Matt was a dub. All right. Mm-hmm. So don't but don't hold that against him. No. He died in nineteen twenty five and he's he's an Irish ascetic and very much associated uh, of course, with combating 
alcoholism because Matt suffered from it in early in his life. So he was an unskilled laborer, but a very hard worker. He was supposed to have been absolutely lethal when it came to hodding, I think is the expression. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and he was a hot man. And, yep. his, his, and in terms of setting the pace, um, he was a very diligent and hard worker when he wasn't, when he wasn't drunk. That's the problem. Yeah. So he was born in 1856. He's in Dublin. He was the second eldest of 12 children. And they were from the North Strand area. He was ordained. He, sorry, ordained. He was baptized in the Pro Cathedral. And I think to this day, I think the Pro has a shrine to Matt um, on the left-hand side as you're looking at the high altar. And he left school at the age of 12. And he went to work in a wine merchant's store. The problem is, even at the age of 12, he soon began sampling their wares and was considered a hopeless alcohol, alcoholic by the age of 13. Wow. And uh, he then went on to Port and Docks, where he worked in the whiskey stores, could you imagine? And all the way up, he frequented pubs in the city with his brothers and friends, spending most or all of his wages and running up debts. Then in one evening in 1884, when he was 28, he was penniless. He was out of credit. Nobody would bring him in for a drink in any of the pubs. And several friends passed him by without even acknowledging who he was. And he went home in disgust and announced to his mother that he was taking the pledge, which he went on to do in Clonliffe, in Clonliffe College. And he took it for three months and then he took it for another six months and then he took it for life. So he drunk. He was an alcoholic for 16 years and then he was sober for 40 years of his life. And um, the first seven years, of course, were quite difficult and he became very devout, attending mass, daily prayer and so on and so forth. Um, his spirituality is very much focused on uh, prayer, fasting and service, um, trying to model himself on the early Irish monks. Mm-hmm. And he now the interesting thing about it was Matt had a spiritual director and the spiritual director encouraged him to wear um, chains. Now, when we say chains, they were very light, like the chain of a clock. Okay. Right? Mm. And they were a form of penance because they were irritants to and it was also a reminder. It was a reminder to Matt in terms of his his pledge to stay sober, but also as a form of um, asceticism, I suppose. Um, he died, he, he, and nobody knew anything about this until he died because he collapsed on his way to Mass of heart failure in Dublin. He was taken to Jervis Street Hospital as it was at the time, and when they took off his took off the clothes, they found you know the the, the chains, the chains. Um, there. So that got people's people's attention. And so they started the process for his investigation into his life in 1931. And he is buried in, uh, I'm going to say, Sean McDermott Street, the church on Sean McDermott Street in Dublin. Um, and he was declared venerable by Paul VI in 19, 1975. So it's an interesting one. Ta- uh, Pat, Matt is one of the patrons, I suppose, of the, the Pioneer Total Abstinence Association. We had them on a couple of weeks ago in the program. There's a big devotion to him actually in Australia, um, oddly enough. Um, and it's just, it's an interesting one. Matt's story is an interesting one. A guy that most people would write off. Yeah, he's buried in Sean McDermott Street in Dublin in Our Lady of Lourdes Church. And where he spent his life, and that's where his remains are. And if I'm not mistaken, I need to double check this, but I think Francis, Pope Francis, went to that church when he was in Dublin. I need to double check that. I'll come back to you on that one. Okay. But anyway, okay. John, they're just a couple of the saints, the Irish, the, the causes, the Irish causes that are pending, where we're looking for, you know, 
stories, testimonies, miracles to push them on towards sainthood. But I thought they were an example and a very multifaceted example of witnesses to the gospel in different facets of life. Uh, which I thought we'd just share with people uh, this Sunday morning. You know, thanks for that. And it just reminds me, as you were, as you were recounting, that was always beautiful. Um, I was just thinking there of Father Payton, Father Patrick Payton, and he's one, I think he's a venerable, he's at the venerable stage at this point, but we had often spoke about possibly revisiting that centre again and revisiting uh, his story and so on and so on. We might pick up that sometime. Yeah, uh, but but just to remind myself again, Shane, the way it goes: servant of God, venerable, beatification, and sainthood. They're the four steps. Servant Say, of God, servant of God, venerable, beatification, beatification, and uh, then canonization. Canonization, excuse me. Okay, yeah. and it starts off with um, from the diocese they have to gather certain information, and through 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 the bishop, forward it on to Rome to the causes of the saints. The causes of the saints chat about it for a few centuries or a few weeks or a few years or whatever it might be. Exactly. And yeah. they come back to say to the Pope, okay, we recommend. Yes. But, but the Pope doesn't just automatically say, listen, I fancy that guy should be a saint. It no. goes through this process. No. Oh, there's a whole process that it has to go through, a whole investigation. Now, people might remember there used to be a thing called the, the devil's advocate. Mm. Yes. Now, it was it was part of the process. Now, they got rid of it in the 1960s. And I think, personally, myself, it should be brought back. But um, it's basically the person was trying to dig up the dirt on any potential saint. Yeah. Um, so it was like a court case. You had to argue your case that the person was a saint. Um, and it's some, some causes just sit there and they don't move because maybe they don't have a postulator or yeah. maybe there's no funds for been able to do the investigations and gather the paperwork and all that type of thing um so it's 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 um yeah so that's that's that there one. must be thousands of them so in the pipeline going back oh, to yeah. the centuries and exactly exactly shane thanks a lot for that maybe we might take a little bit of music uh, at this stage um one that i was thinking about when you mentioned to me about uh, speaking about saints and causes of saints um, I think it's a nice one. It's entitled Shine, Jesus Shine, and it's by Eden Espinanza. Come back and join us again in the third part of our programme this morning where we read and reflect on the Word of God. Lord, the light of your love is shining. 